Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here again with Elias Randall. We've nicknamed him the Plat Planner. Welcome back, Elias. Yeah, hello, everyone. Thanks for uh, tuning in. I'm excited to be here again. Yeah, we're going to have a good show today. Um, Elias and I, you know, we spent a lot of time chatting in the morning, talking about what clients are talking about, kind of what's happening in the world. And I think one of the things that's really come to the forefront, and we've had more people tell us that this is going to happen, like, somebody really knows and that's that they believe there's going to be a market crash and and we believe it's fueled by people who are making predictions and they may or may not be right but what we know is most of the time they're not right yeah and, and truth be told we both get pretty fired up about this because it's like the people making these predictions you're doing more harm to investors and retail investors than you are good by having these extreme views well, absolutely. And so one of the things we did is we actually went out there and we typed in the search term into Google. And one of the most highly searched terms in 2021 has anything to do with market crashes. And as you said, it's more harm than good. Um, so today's show, we're all going to talk about why the market, why if there's a market crash, it probably doesn't matter long term. You know, we're not going to feel good about it today. But we're going to talk about some of the reasons that most of the stuff you hear is purely noise or driven by an individual that has another agenda. Yeah, they're either selling a book or a subscription to a newsletter. Yeah, and I always think it's great to kind of go back and look, what are the relevant market crashes that, that we've seen in modern history? And the first one we, we should look at is 1929. And that's really what led into the Great Depression. It was caused by the overbuying of stocks on margin. And, and back then, there weren't as much restrictions on margin requirements. So um, this led to right. a big sell-off because people couldn't hit their, couldn't satisfy the margin requirements, led to a depression, and ultimately led to more regulation in our industry. That leads us into 1973-74. Oil prices were spiking rapidly. There was high inflation and bad monetary policy. I think one of the things we have to remember today about where we are in our cycle is that we have relatively easy monetary policy today. I mean, we have free-flowing money, ultra-low interest rates. Um, so that's a little bit different than 1973-74. Black Monday in 1987. This is a combination of, you know, high oil prices going up, started just going down very, very rapidly. We had tensions between the U.S. and Iran, um, and traders were now using computers, so it actually started making the market moves larger. Right. And I've bigger this, orders and bigger trades were taking place, first time ever. Well, and flow of transaction, too, yeah. meaning it was no longer, I and mean, they were still there with the pen and the paper and stuff, but it wasn't done on just maybe a ledger. And I've made this argument a lot recently that I believe a lot of the volatility that we see in markets today is driven by how quickly someone can actually go execute a trade, whether it's a retail investor, a computer, a black box, an algorithm, a desk trader somewhere. They can literally just go do it with a snap of the finger where back in 1987, if I wanted to make a trade, I had to call up my broker and then my broker sent that order. We, you, you, you've seen um, the Wolf of Wall Street. I'll never forget in the Wolf of Wall Street when the guy is uh, teaching Jordan Belfort at the time how to like make a trade. He puts it in the, the thing and he hits, pounds it. The thing goes shooting up. 
Yeah. You know, yeah shooting like up the, to the ceiling. Right. I mean, that was like the way it was now. Now it's just we log into E-Trade or wherever you trade, make make the trade on the account. Yeah, it's like at the bank, the little tube that sucks the sucks your envelope into yeah. the teller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's why they were doing it in 1987, which was probably at that time a massive improvement over what they had been doing. Right. Um, leads us into the dot-com bubble. Um, a lot of people, if they were, you know, of age to be able to watch the market at that point in time, if you're born, you know, in 1997, you don't know what this is maybe, but that was when literally anything that had a dot-com behind it was perceived as valuable. Oh, yeah. anything.com has well, to be worth something. Right. It's on the internet. It's going to be valuable. Yep. yep. And that said, some were, most weren't, but it led to basically a 70 to 80% correction in technology stocks. And it took took the NASDAQ a long time to ever regain back to where it was, um, you know, before the, the dot-com bubble. Into the great financial crisis, you know, that was all teed up by, you know, abusive lending policies, um, subprime loans and mortgages that were made to people who couldn't get it. And, you know, we like to reference movies. If somebody out there hasn't seen this movie, go watch The Big Short. Yep. Because it's absolutely the best way that we can actually explain what happened in the housing crisis. And I, I remember the scene in this movie, um, and I forget his name, but he was the hedge fund guy that had been being pitched, hey, you need to buy this, you know, it's a housing bubble, it's going to go down. So he takes his team, they fly to Florida to do some research, and they start driving around with a real estate agent. And she's driving him down a road, and he's got his two other guys in the car with him. And they're like, oh, I have this one listed. It sold for $1.2 million. You can buy that for eight hundred today. And it's just up and down the entire street. Yep. And they finally go knock on this door and say, hey, you know, you haven't paid your mortgage. And the guy's like, what? And he's like renting the house, has no idea what's going on, but there's multiple mortgages on this place. <laughs> and then they drive to the gentleman's club, and they interview a gal who works there. And she's got like four mortgages. Yeah. And then they meet with the mortgage broker and they're bragging about giving away these ninja loans, no income, no job, no problem. We'll get you approved. And that is the abuse that led up to the financial crisis. And it was abuse by people selling the loans, the real estate industry, banks were greedy about how much they could make. Yeah, there was um, a lot of moving parts there. It was, but go watch The Big Short. It's a phenomenal movie. It just gives you an insight as to what's going on. Cause I don't think everybody was affected at some level by it, but I'm not really sure they understand why it happened. And yeah. if we start to understand why things happen, we just become more educated about what could happen in the future. Um, and we just start seeing those things differently. And then ultimately COVID-19, I mean, we had a 38% drop. Um, that was a crash really it's probably the first time we've kind of put our country into a into a purposeful recession. If you think about it, we, we just said, hey, everybody, please stay home and don't go to work. I mean, this was 100% caused by a virus, but the, re the reaction was the best way to deal with it was to shut everything down. And we've never seen that. Um, at, least, right. at least most people in our generation, I can't speak to what happened with the um, the flu in the like 1919. Yeah, like the Spanish flu yeah. and the other pandemics. I, I'm right. sure it was like that, but I can't speak to that because I didn't live through it. But what I will say is we've really, in, in the last 100 years, not seen anything like it. Right. Um, 
So with that said, I, why don't you kind of talk to people about, I think it's always good to level set and say, what what's the difference between a correction, a bear market, a collapse? Like we hear these terms thrown around loosely, Elias. What's the difference? So here here's kind of how we define how most financial people define a correction. It'd be a sell-off of 10%. So that'd be like recently the NASDAQ has gone down 10% from the highs. So we would call that a correction and happens on average every 16 months. And the NASDAQ's just one measurement of the market. That's mostly technology companies, but any index, a 10% um, drawback would be a correction. A bear market, once we hit down 20%, that would be the definition of a bear market. And on average, we have one bear market every seven to 10 years. So you can count on one a decade. You're right. gonna have 20% downturn. And then we kind of define so down 40, we call that a collapse. And that's happened three times in the last 120 years. So it's a pretty rare event, but it can happen. Um, so that's kind of our uh, definitions moving forward for the show. Um, I see, you know, one of the charts that I saw was this Invesco chart. It says the average bull market lasts 1,742 days and has a positive return of 158%. And the average bear market lasts 363 days, so just under a year, and has a negative return of about 33. Well, we just went through a bear market that lasted like 90 days. It was, yeah, it was short. It, it was, was short. really short. Yeah, so I think the thing to remember here is people like to talk about the bad stuff because ultimately the pain of a loss is way greater than the sense of well-being you get from a market that goes up 158% over seven years. I know. And when you look at, see, and that's a good, that's a good talking point. And that's something we talk with clients about at our, our firm all the time is, yes, we understand the pain of your losses. It hurts more than your gains. But when you really take time to just look at this, so these are averages. So your average bull market lasts over 1,700 days and you're up 158% your account goes down 33%. And then we all just like, we all just freak out, but we forget that even at that rate, we're still up like 120%. Right. So is it really that bad? Well, here's what causes it to be bad. We have a community of predictors out there that believe they're right. They believe that they'll predict the market's gonna crash. And if you predict anything long enough, there's a likelihood you'll be right. And one of the people driving in, and we're not here to like bashing these people, but these guys are doing way more harm than they are good to the average everyday investor. It's flat out because if you follow their advice, we're going to tell you how well you would have done. Well, I'm going to try and be nice, but I might bash a little bit today. <laughs> well, okay. I'll try and be nice. So though. the guy who's all over YouTube, Harry <clears throat> Den, he, he has his Monday rant. Um, so Harry Den has his Monday rant. He has 35,000 people that watch this like the day it goes out. And his subscriber and following yeah. is bigger than that. Um, he goes, he's interviewed by CNBC. He gets interviewed by people on YouTube. He's very popular. He yeah, is. Absolutely. And in full disclosure, he hasn't always been just a bear, but he just no. makes market predictions. So it doesn't have to be that you're predicting a bear market. You can predict something else that is arguably just as bad for the everyday investor. Um, but right now he's calling for a 40% collapse in the market by April. Well, he might be right. I was watching one of his one of his videos. This is like three weeks ago, in his exact words, 
I've been predicting something like this for the last 20 years. I don't remember what the prediction was, but he's like, for 20 years, I've been predicting this. So for 20 years, he hasn't been right. Well, and, so, right. So that's where I always think. So every time you're wrong, you just, okay, I was wrong, but I'm going to be right next year. Right. Well, and the first thing I always do and we talk about is, okay, who's making the prediction? Where are we taking this information from? Because I've had clients, hey, I heard the market's going to collapse. I heard the market's going to crash. Well, yeah, you're hearing it everywhere. And we're going to talk about why you hear it everywhere from a behavioral standpoint. But the first thing I always do is who are we getting the information from? Are they reputable? What's their track history? Okay. So I know you did a lot of research. I did a lot of research. But one of the things um, Harry Dent does is he sells what, Elias? He sells books. Yeah. He, sell, he sells a subscription to a newsletter and he sells books. Sells book subscription. He used to run a couple of different funds. And, you know, I think it's important to say, hey, what's your accuracy of these predictions? So in 1999, he actually launched um, the AIM Dent Demographic Trends Fund. It had one great year. It's up 54% in 1999. But guess what? So is everything else. Right. In the 90s, I think from what I've been reading, that kind of the height of his popularity, because he did have some accurate predictions. Like he predicted the asset, the financial crisis in Japan. And then he predicted the big run up in the nineties kind of early. So he was very popular at this time when he came out with this fund and he had one really good year. They were up 54% one year. And then until 2005 lost 11% annually. Right. And then, and that's when the fund actually merged with aim 2009. He launched Advisor Share Dent Tactical ETF. And here's what I'd tell you. Anything that said tactical behind it has done horrible since 2009 for the most part. Um, that was actually liquidated in 2012 due to underperformance. Well, just think about it. You got the guy who's supposed to be able to predict everything, yet he can't keep an investment fund open because of massive underperformance. We yeah. talk to clients all the time. We don't have to beat the S&P 500. We need to get a relative return. What does that mean? That means if the S&P 500 or the stock market goes up 10% and you have 80% of your money in stocks, we should get around an 8% return. What blows up financial plans? This is what blows them up. We're assuming we have a portfolio that has 80% stocks and the market goes up 10 and that portfolio does minus two. That kills a financial plan. Yeah, and there's there's a disconnect there. Right. Yeah. If the market goes down, you know, four and you go down three, that doesn't kill a financial plan. We tested for it. But when times are prosperous, we have to take part in those as long-term individual investors to actually be successful. Okay, so yeah. he claimed in 2009, this gets better, in 2009, he claimed that he called the bottom in the financial crisis. Yeah, okay? it's, it's on his website. So you can go to harrydent.com. There's a list at the bottom of all of his accurate predictions. One of them is he called the bottom to the day of the market in 2009. Well, then he started this fund and he couldn't even beat the index after he started the fund, after accurately calling the bottom. So think about how crazy this is. If he just, if, if an individual just invested into the S&P 500 at the bottom, if he could call the bottom and just bought the stock market, as simple as it gets they'd be up 400%. And, and his clients would be super happy. Right. So I think it goes to the, the prediction, 
you can't predict this. Like I would not listen to anything he's saying. So his most recent prediction, let's, let's just look at this right now. He's calling for a 40% collapse. He believes your portfolio should be allocated between cash and long-term U.S. Treasuries. Yep. Okay. Specifically, the thirty-year Treasury. The thirty-year Treasury. It, it's right there in his. It's, it's right there in print. So I went back and said, okay. And he he made this call in February. Okay. So I went back and researched. Said, what's the thirty-year long-term Treasury done this year? What's it done? Because he's calling for it. So I want to level set this. <clears throat> Interest rates are tied to, you know, trading in the 10-year treasury. It's what most people look at. What's the yield on the 10-year treasury? And if we understand anything about interest rates, there's an there's a relationship between prices and yield. And as yield rises, prices go down. Okay. So you're you put a hundred dollars in and it pays a one percent yield and that yield goes up to one five, that price comes down. Okay. Yep. The 10-year treasury to start the year was 0.91. Today, it's 1.57. So yields have risen rapidly, yeah. very rapidly. Some of that yield rises due to this um, optimistic view of a recovery and, and concerns that inflation is going to actually follow that. Okay, So the 30-year, or I want to use the Vanguard Long-Term Bond Index, VGLT, year to date when we're filming the show, it's down 8.9%. The last three months, it's on average down 9.95. In the last year, it's lost 6.5. So he just recommended to somebody, to everybody that follows him, to buy the most interest rate sensitive product potentially out there while interest rates are rising. If somebody did that, they lost 10%. Yeah. Literally in a very short period of time. Um, so I can just go back and here's a list of his books, Zero Hour. The Sale of a Lifetime, How the Great Bubble Bust of 2017 Can Make You Rich. There was no bubble in 2017. No, um, there was not. The Great Demographic Cliff, How to Survive and Prosper During Great Deflation from 2014 to 2019. There was not deflation. They're, they're all wrong. The Great Depression Ahead in 2009. We haven't seen a Great Depression. The Next Great Bubble, 2006. I didn't read that. I don't know. The Great Crash Ahead, 2011. Well, what crash? Yeah, he predicted in 2011, and it happened in 2021. So if somebody said, boy, it's going to crash, I got to get out of the market, I missed out on 10 years of gains. Yeah, and so these book titles, I mean, they're sensational, but the one that, sta that really <laughs> stands out to me from 2017, zero hour. Like, to me, that's like, so is the stock market going to have a correction, or is it an apocalypse? Like, are we on the verge of just the end of the world? when he calls the books titled zero hour. And to me, I'm like, how is that helpful to any investor to get them so scared they buy this book? And then, I don't know, well, I guess I've never read it. So I don't know what he's saying in the book. I just is know it's that not helpful. I mean, right. these predictions <clears throat> are actually way more dangerous to the individual investor than just being in the market and yeah. moving on down the road. Yeah, I so, mean, this is the reason people fail because they listen to this stuff and you did some research. We have some other stuff in here we're gonna talk about. The reason people fail is because they make bad decisions with money. Inherently, people aren't good investors because it goes 100% against how we're built as people, right? We should be, when times are prosperous, we should be selling. Well, that, that's not what we're doing. We're getting greedy <laughs> Right. And when times greedy, are bad, yeah. you should be buying, but that's not how we operate because we're fearful. So the stock market's 100% against all normal, human emotion.
Yeah. Can I pump a book that I've been reading for a little bit? I'm almost finished with yeah, it. Yeah, let's do it. So, and I actually brought it for a prop today. So it's called The Laws of Wealth. So this is an example of a book that you can read. It's by Dr. Daniel Crosby. He's a specialist in behavioral finance and the psychology of investing. You will be a thousand times better off reading his book and following the things he outlines than reading Zero Hour or The Great Crash Ahead by Harry Dent. Because in this book, you're going to actually, these are things that you can do, and he's teaching you about how it affects you emotionally. And then he says, here's how it affects you emotionally, but here's what you can do to be successful in the long term. Yeah, and I've read that book. I read that book several years ago. I reference it a lot in the show because it's just really good common sense things that people can do to be successful at investing, especially if you're doing it yourself, right? right. Re- one of the reasons people would hire a financial advisor, and this has been quantified through numerous studies, that the value a financial advisor really adds to somebody is on the behavioral coaching, helping people not make poor decisions. It's probably the most valuable thing we it provide. Is, Vanguard has a study out there. It's the most valuable thing that we provide is the behavioral it, coaching. Right, if everybody could exercise the right behavior, there's a lot of things we do and help people with. But if you're an accumulator and you have the right behavior, more than likely you'll be okay. Yeah, and it's it's almost like we're the we're the buffer because we have these conversations and we're just kind of the buffer of we're keeping you from doing something that's stupid. That's it. Well, and, it, and not stupid, just that you don't know you shouldn't do because right. I think, probably shouldn't say that. That's a little harsh. Yeah, I mean, think about it. We're telling people. The media is telling people, you should do this. You should be concerned. The market's going to crash. You could go here. You should sell this and buy gold. And the media is pumping this to people. So people just put on a media filter and said, I'm not paying attention to this stuff, which is part of what this book will talk to you about. You'll be way better off. So the next one who's predicting, and once again, we're going to go back and talk about who we listen to. There's another guy named Jeremy Grantham. He actually runs GMO. It's a very popular um, investment fund. So he does run an investment fund. It has been in existence. It's very successful. Yeah. And he's had articles recently saying, hey, um, we're in a bubble. And he believes there's going to be a correction. And he may or may not be right. Um, he He's talking about this euphoric state of the market with Bitcoin and SPACs and Robinhood and you know, all these large trading blocks. Um, but again, in 2013, I went back and did the research on Jeremy Grantham. And if we're going to predict, which I don't know if his are so much as predictions as market outlooks that he puts in his economic letters to investors, kind of sharing what he's thinking. But in early 2013, um, there's an article out there talking about his letter to investors and the anonymous warning in this letter about you know how he thought an asset bubble was coming in 2013. By the end of 2013, he's went from, we're in a bubble, we should move to emerging markets, to revising his outlook for stocks to rise 30, 20 to 30%. Well, if he just said nothing, <laughs> everybody would have been better off because they don't know. If they knew, why would they tell us? Well, especially a guy running a fund, he wants outperformance over yeah, everyone else. Absolutely. Um, so I'm not bashing him. I'm just saying he. They, if you're making a prediction, eventually you will be right. I just don't know when. And then what's the actual opportunity cost of sitting it out? The third person, we've talked about him before, Elias is David Hunter. 
He called for an 80% downturn in 2021. He sells gold and IRAs. So he's literally just cringing off the bottom. Meaning what is every single, you know, emotion I could arouse in somebody to make them buy something that I'm selling. And this is it, this, this hits the epitome. And I'm not saying he might not be right. I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know. But here's what I do know. In the YouTube interview, and said we've been in a 90-year bubble. What's a 90-year bubble? Yeah, he said he's I mean, like for real. the quote was almost, we're in a 90-year secular bull market. And I'm thinking, basically what you're saying is the stock market always trends up. I don't know. What, <laughs> are, you exactly getting, what are you getting at here? It's exactly what's happened. So mm. here, here's what I did. I had Elias go back. I said, Elias, let's go back. And hypothetically say in 1982, which is basically, you know, when David Hunter started. That's like, the beginning of his career. Beginning of his career. Yeah. If you would have bought gold versus the S&P 500. Yeah. So if you would have started buying gold from David Hunter, if you put 10,000 into gold in 1982, so you're 26 ounces of gold. And this is, this price is a little old, but it's, it was like 2000 an ounce when I did this. You could have bought 26 ounces in 1982. It'd be worth... Fifty to sixty thousand dollars today. Right. Today. Well, what now, if I put five ten thousand the S and P five hundred? Had you just bought the index, the S and P five hundred, your account would have been worth seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars. So ten x. Which this is what's interesting. All these, I mean, all the calls. Hey, should I buy this high flying stock? It might go up ten times. This did ten times what gold did by doing boring investment stuff. Yeah, and when you're buying the index, you're not worried about beating the index. You don't have to do better than the S&P 500. You're just saying, I'm good with the index performance. And I don't care what stocks are. I don't care what one individual stock does. You get to go sleep at night. So then I went further and I gave you the next assignment and just said, hey, let's just go back to Black Monday. And what if we looked at all these collapses or crashes, whatever you want to call them, and an investor put in $10,000 the day before the collapse happened, never investing money until the next highest point before a collapse, just did nothing. What would it be worth today if we act, we were the worst investor, but we had the very best behavior because we didn't listen to any of this garbage that's out there? Yeah. Yeah. And I got it. I laughed about this because when you asked me to do it, I go, so you want me to, you just want me to show people what it would be if you're the worst market timer of all time. And the you worst. just laughed and you're like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Let's do. do that. Because that's, well, think about human emotion. It'd be right. like someone right, right now, you know, at the top of the market saying, man, I got to get in. Okay, great. You got in. But they made the best choice they could do, which was tune out all the media, have a filter, not listen to who's predicting a market crash. They just never sell. Yeah. What would so, it be worth? So here, was the, so here was the hypothetical, just so people understand, you're buying $10,000 each time and it's at the height right before a crash. So you're buying right before Black Monday in 1987. You're buying in March of 2000, right before the dot-com bubble unwinds. You're buying in October 2007 at the height of the market before the financial crisis. And then again in February of 2020. So four different times, uh, excuse me, February 2020, right before the COVID crash. So four different times, total investment of $40,000. You never sell anything. You just buy and hold, and you're the worst market timer ever by doing it this way. Your account would be worth, and as of February 28th, 2021, 
your account would be worth $327,000. So a $40,000 investment and you have over $300,000 in your account. And you invested in arguably the absolute worst you, time yeah. at that point in time. It was the highest point at that point in time in a month. Yeah, you can argue you did it exactly wrong. So then, you know, you know us, we're going to do more research because I just don't want to tell people that predictions are bad. I'm going to back it up with some facts. So we went out and we started pulling charts. Fidelity's got a chart out there. Once again, $10,000 in 1980 grows to 697000 But if we have someone out there saying, man, got to get out of the market, and we start missing days in the market during that cycle. So, and, and think about when the best days in the market probably come. They're typically right after a really bad right. <clears throat> negative day. Or making, there's, there's some kind of reaction to it. So if you would have missed the five best trading days from 1980 till t through March, 2020, your account would have been worth 432,000 versus 697 doing nothing. If you missed the 10 best, it's worth 313,000. The 30 best days, 115,000. And if you missed the 50 best trading days, your account would only be worth $48,000. So and what this shows is by trying to time the market, this really shows how fast it can work against you. Just missing the five best days, that's like $250,000 you missed out on. Yeah, and you think about this, every single, not every investment guy, but most people in our profession, we say the same thing, buy and hold, right? Don't sell, right? Unless there's a reason to sell. What do I, reasons to sell? I talk with people about this. If I can't explain why something's doing what it is, then it's time to get out. Now, I, there's a mutual fund I used that for 10 years, it was one of the best mutual funds out there. Yeah. Then it had a bad three or four or five years, and I couldn't understand or explain why it was doing what it was. It's time to get out. Right. There's a huge that, disconnect there, right. um, but for the most per, pe, most for the most part, most people that are asking, you know, what should I do? They're trying to like look for different advice from somebody. I feel like, you know, they don't want to hear buy and hold because that's not like snazzy and fun, you know. Or they call and say, hey, what do you suggest if I want to be more defensive? Well, are you scared of the market? You're trying to time the market, or are you trying to rotate to something? more conservative within your portfolio because there are different stocks. There are stocks that are more conservative versus more aggressive. We can't just lump stocks into one big giant puddle. Well, right. And if we're pro, I mean, and I, I would assume you agree with this. If we're proactively making good choices and rebalancing, that's not timing the market. That's just be, that's being a prudent investor. That's doing what you should do. Right. Sometimes maybe that involves selling some winners and buying some losers, but it really depends on the person and the portfolio they need to be in, right? Well, and it goes back to timing too. So, you know, if you are taking money out of your investments for a retirement need or a cash flow, you should have some type of a distribution strategy established. So let, let's just say you're an investor and you're taking 50,000 out of your portfolio every year. And right now your cash position is zero and you're taking 50,000 out each year means every single month you have to make a sale to raise the capital to hit your $4,000 a month distribution. And you call me and say, should we go to cash? Well, the answer is we probably already should have some cash or cash alternative so that we're not selling stocks if the market crashes. <laughs> right. And this is just being inherently prepared for the future. And, you know, I talk to people a lot about this. It's a lot harder to mess up during the accumulation phase when you're, you know, saving money because 
most people are putting small amounts of money in their 401k every month over a long period of time. And unfortunately, people think that when they retire, it works the same way during distribution. And it doesn't. And the reason is what you don't want to do is sell when prices are when prices are deflated or depressed. Because once you do it, you've locked in your loss. So when you're in the decumulation or distribution phase, you better have a really, really good distribution strategy put in place to make sure you don't have to worry about this. Because I go back to your numbers. If a bear market lasts 363 days and you're taking money out of the account, you better have a year of income there, if not two, and some other income sources coming in to supplement that so we don't have to sell a stock when it's at its absolute lowest. Well, right, and if someone is properly allocated, has a good financial plan, they're probably not gonna end up in that situation because they've, they've proactively planned for these scenarios. Right, they're planning, that's the key word, planning. And you know, once again, if somebody needs a plan, they can go to us at btwellshow.com we can get them a plan and help them get on the right track, whether it's a financial plan, a distribution plan, or an accumulation plan. Um, but you did some research on this. You found this from some of the guys that we follow. But there's a there's a blog called The Seduction of Pessimism by Morgan Housel. And Morgan Housel, he's a partner at the Collaborative Fund. He's an expert on behavioral finance and the history of former finance columnists for The Motley Fool and the Wall Street Journal. So if you know anything, Motley Fool's super popular with like stock pickers, Wall Street Journal, most people know what the Wall Street Journal is. So Morgan Housel is, you know, reputable. But he wrote this blog about the seduction of pessimism. And the first literally quote in here sums up why predictors are dangerous. Tell someone, and I'm gonna quote it, tell someone that everything will be great and they're likely either to shrug you off or offer a skeptical eye. But tell someone they're in danger, you'll have their undivided attention. And that's exactly what predictors are doing. Predictors and book salesmen. Harry I'll Day say. <laughs> has our undivided attention. Yeah. The gold salesman has our undivided attention because people know that if they lose 80%, that has way more of an impact on them than them being part of a seven-year bull market that goes up 158%. So they are playing to their actual fears and desires in life to accomplish their narrative. And that's why it's important to say, hey, who's making the prediction? Are they reputable? And what's their motive behind this? Right? I mean, let's be honest. What's our motive behind our show and what we do? It's to help people put together a financial plan so they don't make mistakes that could be avoided. That's it. Yeah, right. I and mean, I'll, if we say we don't have a motive, we do. Yeah, we do. And, well, I think, yeah, to help people do a financial plan, I also think to help combat some of this negative and bad financial advice that's out there. Absolutely, for sure. Um, and so the other thing I want to add about Morgan Housel's blog especially this one, seduction of pessimism. Anyone listening, if you have fears about a market crash or maybe you've listened to Harry Dent or someone else recently, type in your Google search, seduction of pessimism by Morgan Housel and just read the blog and kind of consider the things he's talking about. And I think it'll help, I think it'll help ease some of your nerves and you'll also understand why certain information elicits certain feelings from us. Yeah, for sure. So the last thing to round this out before we kind of call it a day, the last kind of piece of evidence we have that 
most of these predictions and you know the behavior of investors typically isn't good is Dow Bar and Dow Bars. It's a financial um, expert in evaluating and auditing and rating businesses, and they do all of these studies about what's the market done versus the average investor. They've been around since 1976. But this is what you need to know about why predictions aren't helpful, why bad behavior is rampant, and most of this media out there is not helping you. Over the last 30 years, the average retail investor has a 4% annual return. The S&P 500 is average 10. They've underperformed by 60%. If I underperformed by 60, think about this. You wouldn't be in business no, anymore. No, even better. If I underperformed by 60% the market every single year, I would be fired by every client. So arguably every single person out there that's doing this themselves should fire themselves because they're probably going to increase their return massively. Seriously, if you've underperformed the market by 60%, you should fire yourself. Yeah, and don't complain about the fee because that's irrelevant at that you're, point. They're not paying a fee. If they're doing well, it themselves, they're not paying a right, fee. Right, but I'm saying if you hire a professional, if yeah. you're underperforming, you hire someone, that fee is well worth it's it. It's why all the studies, the yeah. Vanguard studies out there that shows or they, they've concluded that the financial professional's value is in the behavioral coaching. There's small value in asset allocation, adhering to a plan, rebalancing, the things that you know maybe the everyday do-it-yourself investor doesn't do. But this is how we help people. The, the true thesis of why. So um, I actually had a lot of fun doing this show. I know it was thought provoking for you. If anybody out there thinks they need to fire themselves <laughs> or if you need a financial plan or if you need help with someone, go to btwellshow.com, click the like or, you know, hit the button to get a plan. If you like our show, please subscribe, like us on YouTube or on Facebook. We've got stuff on Twitter. Um, and those are kind of my final thoughts. Lies, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave everybody with today? Uh, my final thoughts would just be beware of the radical predictions and really just focus on good investor behavior. Do those things. And, you know, I know I'm not going to get your attention because I'm telling you everything's going to be fine, but everything will be fine. Well, Lies, thanks for doing the show with me today. This is Roger Abel signing off. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.